Let's pray. Your word is living. Your word is sure. Father God, as we come to a difficult passage of scripture tonight, I pray we would continue believing it and that you would send out this word, word into our hearts and heal us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In um, moral debate today, there's a phrase that seems to do quite a lot of heavy lifting. I'm sure you've heard it. Uh, you're on the wrong side of history. You heard that? Been used in debate. You're just on the wrong side of history. A couple of assumptions in that phrase. One is the idea that history is moving, progressing towards an ever better moral ideal, and that the position you hold at the moment is somehow going to be judged in the future. The person speaking sort of knows um, by some sort of prescience that it will be judged as wrong. Um, Now, of course, some progression is good, some progression isn't. It's a very terrible way of judging moral reality, really. Um, But more than that, this insult carries the assumption that what matters most in life is what other people think of you and the judgments that they make of you. In a social media world, opinion rules the day. What do people think of me? That's, That's the most important thing that I'm concerned about. The thing is, even if you are on the right side of history, as judged by whoever is qualified to make that sort of decision, even history itself, the passing of time, is not going to be kind to you because whatever success, however right you are in one age, pretty soon you'll be forgotten about. I wonder if you know the poem Ozymandias. Um, uh, Ozymandias, uh, written by Percy Shelley in the 19th century, um, and it was written after archaeologists discovered the statue of Ramesses II, the greatest Egyptian pharaoh there ever was, with huge military campaigns, expansion of empire, everything, absolutely um, impressive emperor and king. And his Greek name was Ozymandias, hence the name of the poem. Uh, uh, But actually, you know, however great he was, one of the greatest kings human race has ever known, all all he has left is a distant memory. And in fact, the poem is about a desert traveler who comes across uh, the remains of a statue, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone. And their head is sort of half sunk in the sand some way away. And the poem finishes like this. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. The hubris of Ozymandias. He is one of the greatest kings there ever was and yet wasn't as great as he claimed because history soon dispatched him. Even if you're on the right side of history, it is not kind to you. Well, our passage this evening says that and is even sharper. Not only that the passing sands of time will very soon obscure your memory and your achievements, but that in fact there is a judgment that is coming. Whatever history thinks of Jesus Christ is, quite frankly, irrelevant. Look at verse 33. We're in Matthew 10, page 975. Verse 33, whoever disowns me, Jesus says, before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. This is not the hubris of a mere man, but the claims of God incarnate. He once came as a saviour, he will come again as a judge. And our passage today confirms this most vital reality. I'm going to say it to you twice. It is worthless to you that you stand on the right side of history if you're on the wrong side of Jesus. It is worthless to you that you stand on the right side of history 
if you're on the wrong side of Jesus Christ. Maybe when you heard the passage being read, you thought, this is not a comfortable passage of scripture. Persecution, hatred, hell, destruction, and towards the end, and we're going to get to this, a challenge to all of us to really examine the genuineness of our commitment to following Christ. As we go through, we might get to some fairly dark places at some point, don't lose sight of verse 32 and the grace that is spoken of here. Being known by God as his adopted children is not a matter of moral performance or good deeds, but of clinging to Jesus. There is grace there. Hold on to it as we work through. Now, verse 22 seems to stand as a nice center in the passage. And you've got it on the service sheet, the pink service sheet. It's printed at the top, and it neatly divides our passage into two. So verses 17 to 25, all men will hate you because of me. So we're going to think about being hated because of Jesus. And then verses uh, 26 to 33, he who stands firm to the end shall be saved. Standing firm because of Jesus. But the key issue that kind of underlies everything is this question, for what, or indeed for whom, are you really living your life? Do you live your life caring what other people think? Or actually, do you, do you really mean what you say when you care about what God thinks? So the context for the passage, Jesus is sending out the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, um, on, their, on their mission, preaching repentance and forgiveness, confronting evil, spreading the love of God's kingdom. We saw last week the Lord of the harvest is sending out workers into the field. Now Jesus is speaking to the 12, but he's speaking for the whole church. See, these words are relevant for all who speak of Christ to make him known and to see salvation come. So at the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, Jesus commissions the whole church to go out and carry on his ministry of reconciliation. Verse 18 here, Jesus says, you'll be brought before, um, uh, before governors, kings, as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But he's already said to the twelve, you're only going to the cities of Israel. As, as he's speaking, as Matthew is telling us uh, what Jesus is all about, it's, it, Jesus is kind of lifting his gaze and speaking to us very clearly through this. And a third reason why we might say this is, this is for us as much as for the 12 disciples is that the level of persecution Jesus speaks about never really happens until decades and centuries after his ascension into heaven. This is for all of us. But look at verse 15. Many will reject this message and judgment is coming for them. In fact, verse 16, Jesus knows he is sending out his messengers into danger like sheep amongst wolves. Speaking for Christ will bring opposition. And this requires a firm conviction. Don't worry about how history judges you. Trust in the one who judges history itself. So the first half of the passage, being hated because of Jesus. As I said, summed up in the first part of verse 22, all men will hate you because of me. Now that all men doesn't mean all people absolutely everywhere without exception. Often when the Bible says all people, it, it means sort of all types of people, all people without distinction. And that seems to be what's going on here. What it's saying is there's not one part of life where Jesus will not be opposed. So verse 17, in the religious sphere, the disciples of Jesus Christ will be handed over to synagogues and flogged. Religious leaders will hate the message so much that they will rely on religious law and custom and flog them. The, the Apostle Paul, before he was converted to Christianity, says that he persecuted the church and thought he was serving God and being righteous in doing so. So there will be religious opposition. 
Verse 18, opposition will come to Jesus in the civic sphere, brought before governors and kings. They will require a defense from Christians. And notice verse 19, the inevitability of state persecution. When they arrest you. Not if, but when. Verse 21, in the family sphere, brother betrays brother to death and so on. You're going to hear more about this next week in in the passage as it continues. But Jesus is saying here, he is such a divisive figure that in fact even those closest to you may well despise you because of his name. And we might want to infer in all of this, in this sort of whole spread of the arena of opposition, that the sphere of commerce, the marketplace, labor, our employment. In all these areas of life, everywhere, there will be people who hate Jesus Christ and therefore hate Christians because of him. Now look at verse 23. Jesus doesn't say, seek out persecution, go looking for it, go looking for trouble. Seek out martyrdom. No, there's none of that here. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Flee from it. And it sort of echoes verse 14. If anyone doesn't welcome you, shake the dust off your feet. Move on. If you're persecuted, flee. There's plenty of more places to go. And in fact, verse 23 continues. You will not finish going through the cities of Israel before, and I think this is what um, before the Son of Man comes, the coming of the Son Son of Man means in this context, before Jesus is resurrected and ascended to heaven, before the Son of Man comes into his glory. If you want want to know more about why I read it like that, ask me afterwards. But basically I think Jesus is saying, I will not even, sorry, you will not even have finished going through Israel before I've entered into my glory. So don't waste time. If you're getting stuck in one place or persecuted, move on. Again, don't seek out martyrdom. But... And this is where it gets heavy. Don't be surprised when martyrdom seeks out the church. Bottom line, there is no corner of our lives in which Jesus will not be opposed somehow. But as I'm saying that, you might be thinking, why? Why is there such hatred here for Christians? This is more severe than just disliking someone because they support the wrong sports team. I'm from Wales. I played rugby for my school. Believe me, there is no one that we dislike more than the English. I'm sorry to say it. When we were playing the English teams, we were to be more brutal than when we're playing Welsh teams. That was just how it was. Is it like that? Or maybe political party. Well, you're from, you know, insert name here, whatever political party you don't like. It's more than just that. It's a spiritual reality. It's not just wearing the wrong badge. Verses 24 and 25 explains why Christians are to expect it. Because it's what Jesus underwent. Persecution, hatred, opposition was what the master faced. How on earth can his servants expect anything better or easier? Because Jesus was betrayed by his own country. In verse 4, Judas Iscariot betrayed him, one of his closest companions. He was brought before Pontius Pilate, a Gentile governor. He was flogged, he was killed, and he faced religious opposition. Look what it says in verse 25. The the head of the house has been called Beelzebub. That means prince of demons. This man is a devil, is what people said about Jesus. And of course, that's an easy way to dispatch of him. You brand him as a monster and you can do what you want. Jesus was not executed for being a revolutionary or a, a thorn in the side of power. Jesus was executed for blasphemy. He said, I am God. And to the world, that was... Nothing. That was the worst thing that he could possibly say. And the thing is, it's Jesus' own history and our relationship to him that explains why it is we're going to be opposed in this way. Verse 22, all men will hate me, all men will hate you because of me, actually literally because of my name. 
The name Christ Jesus. Christ, God's anointed king. Jesus, God saves. In Matthew 1, he will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He came to save from sin. He is the creator who stepped into this world. And since the beginning, since the fall of humanity in Genesis 3, we have rejected God and hated him turned our back on him, wanted to be gods ourselves. That is the essence of sin. And so when God becomes a man and walks among us, we just carry on doing what we always have done. And given half a chance, we murdered our maker. The perfectly sinless one, treated as a criminal and killed. Yes, he rose again and ascended on high, but still sinners are going to hate him. And that's where Christians come in. Because you see, we are united to Jesus Christ by faith. We're not more morally accomplished if we're Christian. We're not better. We have absolutely no credit to our name, but by grace alone, through faith alone, we are one with the risen Son of God. We are united to the one that the world hates. In the book of Acts, before he was converted, Paul was called Saul, and Saul was persecuting the church. And in Acts chapter 9, Jesus appears before Saul on the road to Damascus and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You kind of want to ask, well, he's not. He's persecuting the church. You know, you're up there, church is over there. What are you on about, Jesus? Well, the reason is that by his Holy Spirit, Christ is in the church and the church is in Christ. There is union, there is oneness between Jesus and his church. It's not just a badge that we wear, it's a spiritual reality. We are united with Christ if we are Christians. And that's why, just incidentally, verses 19 and 20, we don't have to make up a message as we speak. We, we are given the message as children of God to speak of our Father, to speak of the Son who reveals the Father. We don't need to make anything up. And the world that hates him will hate us for it because it's spiritually opposed to him. And this is the consistent message of the New Testament. This isn't just some one-off gloomy passage. You know, Matthew 10, wow, this is a, this is a barrel of laughs, isn't it? Well, actually, the whole New Testament says, if you are a Christian, expect this. Jesus says the same thing in John 15. If the world has hated me, it will hate you. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Whoever desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter chapter 4, do not be surprised, my beloved friends, my beloved brethren, when, when this fiery trial comes upon you and test your faith as though you are undergoing something strange, but rejoice insofar as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. And he goes on to say, actually, if you are persecuted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because it shows you are united to him, you are his. This is a consistent message. Now, in the comfortable West, we don't really experience this kind of thing. Talk about being flogged, being betrayed to death by our families, persecuted by the state. Don't get me wrong, we see glimpses of it. I knew a guy in my previous church who converted to Christianity, and on the day that he was baptized, his Muslim family expelled him. I know that there are people in this church, in this congregation, who know exactly what that is like. And that is a glimpse of what is going on around the world. Don't get me wrong, there is hatred in the human heart and people treat one another badly. I get that, absolutely. But it's interesting, in light of the spiritual reality Jesus talks about, that Christians are the most persecuted religious people group on the planet. A very recent Foreign Office study, just a few months ago, commissioned by Jeremy Hunt and conducted by the Bishop of Truro, reported that in some places, Christians are facing near-genocidal levels of persecution. 
As an example, in Iraq, the Christian population has gone from 1.5 million to just under 120,000 in 15 years. The report has quite a lot to say about what's going on in China. The state is stepping up its stringent registration requirements for conforming Christianity. And so church buildings are being destroyed by the state. Christian summer camps for children are being uh, shut down. There are reports of pastors being arrested and beaten. And then when their churches try and meet in the pastor's absence, the elders of the church get arrested and taken away and beaten. From Nigeria, the report says, to Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, North Korea, to name just a few, being a Christian is a dangerous thing. Now, don't get me wrong, in, in some of these places, Christianity is, is exploding, it's spreading, it's flourishing. But that is in spite of the persecution. It is there. Being a Christian is a dangerous thing in these, pl- in these places indeed. Now, we have not experienced that, but the experience of our brothers and sisters around the world, in light of these words, should resonate very painfully indeed. We're not mucking about with this Christianity thing. This is not a convenient appendage to whatever program you have set yourself for the week. And we need to ask ourselves, is this Jesus really worth dying for? Because if our answer is no, then what are we doing? What do we actually believe about him in the first place? What we face in this country is relatively minor to those things, but we still need to have the disposition, I'm going to stand for Jesus even when it hurts. So in this country, even just this year, um, saying Jesus is the only way of salvation, in him alone is God and salvation to be found. Um, As an example, that got a street preacher arrested just a few minutes walk away from my house in Southgate for saying that, for teaching that. In our, in our culture, the hot-button topic of sexuality and gender, saying who I am as a person is not separate from the body that I have, well, actually, people who say, I, I believe what Jesus said about those things have lost their jobs for it. In one school, there's a report of Christian pupils who were suspended for not actively celebrating Pride Month. Now, don't get me wrong. Of course, Christians can be idiots and then get in trouble for being idiots. And in fact, I'm paraphrasing 1 Peter 4, um, don't suffer for being an idiot, he says, murderer or thief. But you get the idea. Let's expand it. Don't suffer for being a Muppet. But the simple fact is, in this country, holding fast, simply believing what Jesus says, is starting to earn the label, whatever the modern equivalent is, of devil, Beelzebub. Rejection and opposition. All men will hate you, Jesus Christ says. And he was the creator who was killed. So, let's move on. Standing firm because of Jesus. Verses 26 to 33. So when opposition comes, how do Christians stand firm? Well, I want to start by saying, by making sure we realize what we've just said. And being ready for it. It's not a sign that things are going wrong when we face opposition for being a Christian. Forewarned is forearmed, and so on and so forth. We are one with Christ, and so his experience of this fallen world will be our experience as well. So, uh, a light example of this, um, my many attempts to go on a diet, you know, some of my bi-monthly diets, I guess, at the end of the day, um, they tend to go better when I'm ready for the fact that it's going to hurt, when I'm ready for the fact that it's not very nice. 
The diets that don't go so well is usually sort of day one or two. I realize that a salad is not quite as satisfying as a cheeseburger. But when I've prepared myself and I know this is going to be coming, then I don't go weak-kneed at the sight of a cream egg, and I'm able to keep going. Jesus sends us out with the promise that it's going to be hard. If we know that and expect it, then at least when these things come, we're ready. This is par for the course for being a Christian. Jesus knew what he was talking about. But he doesn't just say that. He doesn't just say, be ready. He says, don't be afraid of what will come your way. He says it three times. Verse 26, verse 28, and verse 31. He gives us three reasons not to be afraid. But underlying all of them really is this. What can the world do to you? The world cannot ultimately harm you if you are a Christian. We wait for God's perfect timing, and it can be painful and long, but in the end, things will be for our good. It will be worth it. So, three reasons not to be afraid. First one, verse 26. There's an all-important four that's kind of not there in the text. So, do not be afraid of them, for or because there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. The truth will triumph. One of the great frustrations I have in life is stories, films, books, where the innocent suffer. Where someone's in trouble and they shouldn't be because they've been slandered or whatever it is. A John Grisham book, you know, an innocent man is on death row. I know that happens far too often in real life as well. But when he tells a story, you're kind of pulled in, you scream, this is not right. Or the opposite, when the evil, get a, evil people get away with it. I absolutely love the Matt Damon sort of Bourne trilogy. And in, in the final film, spoiler alert... There's a bit where a CIA lady has kind of the dossier of documents that's going to expose the CIA black ops and show these evil men and all the evil things they've been doing. And she's getting to a fax machine. Will she be able to fax it out and expose them for what they are in time? And you're screaming, come on, press the button. You want that. You want that vindication to come. And Jesus is promising in this verse, it will. One day, everything that has been done in secret, God will bring into the light. And that maybe even happens in this life, but it will certainly happen on that day. Which, just as a complete side note, is why when things like abuse happens in the church, it is shocking and wretched and stupid because Christians, of all people, should know evil will never be able to keep quiet. In this context, Jesus is saying, vindication will come for persecuted Christians. See, the Christian life, if you like, is a hidden life. We look like losers. That is not the truth about us, but we look like losers. But one day the truth will be revealed. What is hidden will be made known. In Colossians 3 it says, Our lives are hidden with Christ in God, but when Christ who is our life appears in glory, so then we shall appear with him. It will be made known. It will be seen. On that day, suffering for his sake will be seen to be wrong. And whatever version of history has put Christians in the doghouse will be exposed as a complete fraud. Philippians 2. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even if, for some of the people making that confession, it's too late to save them. So every time we're slandered, or spoken evil of, or bad things happen just because we believe what God says. Remember, vindication is coming. The truth will triumph. The people who tried to write history consigned Jesus to its scrap heap, but he did not remain there. So, verse 27, make him known. What he's told us for these disciples in their ears in conversation, shout from the rooftops, go and tell the world of Jesus Christ. Secondly, 
Don't be afraid, verse 28, because the death of your body is not the end of the world. Don't be afraid because the death of your body is not the end of the world. Again, feel the conviction of Jesus' words here for a lukewarm Christianity. Those who stand firm to the end are the ones who really believe that the death of the body is not the end of the world. Because not even death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This language of body and soul might seem a bit strange to our ears, but the Bible teaches that we have both kind of a, a physical part of us and an inner immaterial sort of spiritual principle, and it calls that body and soul. We're made to be one, body and soul, but even when the body is killed, actually the soul lives on. We lose something absolutely vital to us, but actually the person is not completely destroyed just by the death of the body. The reason why I mention that is that we need to remember Christianity is supernatural and non-materialistic. Jesus destroyed death. The grave is only a temporary resting place. But imagine if you didn't believe that. Imagine if you believed that actually all there is is this physical life and everything that goes with that. Well, then you might actually deny Jesus for the sake of preserving a few more years or whatever it might be. So can you see how this forces us to confront, what do I actually believe about Jesus Christ? And the thing is, that's just the first half of that verse. The second half seems to get pretty bleak indeed, doesn't it? Or certainly very sobering. God, our creator, the one to whom we owe our lives, is the one to really fear when it comes to what someone can do to us. Be afraid of the one who can destroy soul and body in hell. Gentle Jesus meek and mild, thought that actually loving people meant telling them and warning them about the reality of hell, the place where we are separated from God's blessing, where we will never know joy or happiness again, and reap the consequence of our choice to reject God. It's not a popular discussion, is it? And there are some Christians who just try and dismiss the idea altogether. Maybe you hate the idea, oh, God would punish people for turning away from him, for disobeying his law. What a horrible thing to believe. But the thing is, a moment's reflection actually should tell you that deep inside all of us, there is a desire for justice, for perfect justice. Apparently, when former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, was off to visit Robert Mugabe, someone said to him, what do you really want to say? And Rowan Williams responded, this is what I want to say to Robert Mugabe, I'll have a go at doing the voice. <clears throat> He's got a very deep voice. Uh, let's see how deep I can go. There is no immunity from prosecution, even when you're dead. There is no immunity from prosecution, even when you're dead. I think we want to say a hearty amen to that. When we think of the Epsteins and the Savills and the Hitlers and the Lenins and the Stalins of this world, we want to say, yes, there is perfect justice. The God who will one day bring every offense into the light is also the God who will execute perfect and terrible and eternal judgment. But the twist comes that the Bible doesn't just leave it with the real nasties that we can all point at and call a bad guy. The Bible says we have all acted wrongly. We have all rejected God and broken his law and faced divine justice and eternity without his blessing. Thank God, therefore, for verse 32 again. What a relief. We cannot save ourselves. 
We are all guilty and deserving of hell, but Jesus put himself in our place. He took divine justice on himself as he became a man and suffered death, and so the claim of God's justice is extinguished for all who repent and believe. The one who can destroy body and soul in hell will not do that to those who repent and believe in his son. Because in the person of his son, God himself endured hell for us. What can people do to us when he has done that for us? Stand firm, Jesus says. Finally, don't be afraid because, verses 29 to 31, your heavenly father is intimately involved with every detail of your life. One of my favorite films growing up, well, two films, Sister Act, Sister Act 2. And there's that lovely bit in Sister Act 2 where um, the, the girl is singing the song, His Eye is on the Sparrow. Absolutely love that song. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Taken from here, Matthew 10. Sparrows were, still are, small birds, um, very common, and a common source of food, particularly for the poor. But obviously they're very small, and um, therefore there's not much meat on them. So they're very cheap, no pun intended. They are two for a penny, Jesus says in this passage. They are insignificant and unimportant, and yet Jesus uses them to tell us something very special and important about something known as God's providence. God's providence is God's involvement in and direction of everything in creation towards the end he's aiming for. And the thing that Jesus teaches us is this. Not even one of these tiny, meaningless birds can flutter under God's purposes. They cannot flutter under the radar of God's plan. They go where they go, live where they live, die when they die, all as God wants. And so Jesus says, all of the smallest details of your life are known to and overseen by your heavenly Father. God didn't just create all things and kind of step back and let the world go on. He sustains everything. He keeps it going and is is moving it towards his glorious goal. There's lots we could say about this, lots that I'm not going to say. But can you see, it's enough today to see how this fits into Jesus' encouragement to stand firm. God is involved in every detail of your life. If you're on the right side of Jesus, you're not just God's creature, you're his child in Christ. And God is in charge of everything. Nothing will come to you by chance but from his fatherly hand, and therefore nothing can separate you from his love. So what's the worst that can happen? People slag you off. They fire you. They fine you. They imprison you. They execute you. Sure, those things are wretched, but God's purpose for your life is not thwarted by them. He will still have his way, and they are not outside his sovereign purposes. I think I mentioned this last time I preached. It's my, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. In Luke 21, when Jesus is again giving instructions to disciples to go out and take the mission out, he says, you'll be betrayed by family. You'll be put in prison. Some of you will even be killed. But not a hair on your head will perish. You will be killed, but you won't be harmed. What an extraordinary promise to make. And yet that is what is going on here. Killed, but not harmed. Even when you're getting trouble from all parts of your life, ultimately, it cannot harm you because your father is in control. So, you can see in those three things, the truth will triumph, being killed isn't the end of the world, your omnipotent father is involved in everything in your life, don't be afraid if you really believe them. 
And that's where the sting in the tail of this passage comes. Verses 32 and 33. Do you really believe them? Do we really believe that living, suffering, possibly dying for Jesus' sake is actually worth it? What or for whom are we really living? And the reason why this is uncomfortable is this. Who is Jesus talking to in Matthew chapter 10 directly? Who's he talking to? The 12 disciples. The church. It is possible to be a member of a Christian community and not be trusting Christ. That is a sobering warning when you realize that he's speaking to a group that includes Judas Iscariot. And this is something that Jesus repeatedly warns about in Matthew's gospel. In chapter 7, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I will say on that day, depart from me, I never knew you. A chapter earlier, in in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is saying there are some people who give charity, some people who pray, some people who fast and do great acts of spirituality to be seen by men. And Jesus says, if that's all you're living for, well, that's all you're going to get. That's not truly following God. And the situation here, well, it's kind of the same principle, just reversed. If all you are doing is living your life for what people think of you, well, then if the watching world wants you to sack Jesus off, then you're going to oblige them, aren't you? Unless you believe that Jesus really is who he says he is, that the Christian life is hidden, that it is waiting to be revealed, that we are waiting for God and fearing God and saying he is the one we want to be on the right side of. It is only through Jesus Christ, and Jesus is warning us, do you mean what you say when you confess that he is Lord? Because Judas didn't. Now, maybe you're hearing that warning and, and, and you're despairing and you're saying, well, I've failed. There are times I've not stood up for Jesus. Oh my goodness, is this it? Am I, am I really one of his? And can I say, if, if that is concerning you, if, if you're worried about that, that is a pretty good sign that you're a Peter, not a Judas. Because Peter is also in this list. And Peter went on to deny Jesus. Peter had a, a moment of weakness, a doubt. He failed. Jesus isn't talking about that kind of thing. Jesus is getting at wholesale abandonment in the face of opposition. Jesus is not looking for superheroes. He's looking for people who know they need to cling to Jesus and don't care what the world thinks of them. So let's just finish with a few questions that might help us recommit to speaking out for him. Does the rejection of our friends matter more to us than the rejection of God? Do we care more about being liked than standing for the truth? Do we care more about being on the right side of history than being right with God in Jesus Christ? All men will hate you because of me, Jesus promises. But if you keep going by not being afraid of people but living for God and following Christ, it will be worth it. We're going to finish by praying Psalm 27 together. So could you turn back to page 557 of the Bibles? To Psalm 27. The reason why we're doing this is when we say the Psalms, pray the Psalms, and sing the Psalms, we're filling our mouths with prayers that God has inspired and kind of giving us a vision. This is what it means to follow God. This is what it means to be someone who desires to keep going with Jesus, to keep following God even when it hurts. This Psalm is a lovely Psalm. What we're going to do is I'm going to say the odd numbered verses one, three, five, seven, nine, hatta. 
pause a moment, one, three, five, seven, yep, and so on, and you're going to say the even-numbered verses, two, four, six, and so on. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Saviour. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Amen. Well, we're going to come now to a time of communion, but before we get there, we're going to uh, sing a song. So um, if the band could make their way to their instruments. But just to say, as, as they're making their way up, um, we've talked about the fact that God is a God who is the one to fear, the one to whom we owe our lives, and that in Jesus Christ, clinging to him, we have a hope of salvation that overcomes the world. And as we come to the Lord's table, we, we taste, we, we feast spiritually on Christ to nourish that faith, to help us keep going in the bread and the wine. So this is a table, this is a feast for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, for those who confess that he lived, died, and rose again for them, so they might know God the Father as their Father. For those who have been baptised and those who are at peace with their neighbour, this table is for you. If that's not you, or if for any reason you don't want to come up and receive um, the Lord's Supper tonight, maybe just sit and look at the bread and the wine and think about what we're going to talk about, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and see people come with empty hands to receive him. And in doing so, see a picture of the gospel. We come with the empty hands of faith and receive life in all its fullness. That is what we're seeing, that is what we're experiencing as we come to this table. He is the one who holds us fast. That is why we eat. So let's stand and sing our next song.